This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook, Volume 2, and today is May 1st, 2023. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, my name is Dave Koenig. I was at Hofstra Radio, a.k.a. WRHU, from two, uh, nine, wow, I, time doesn't make sense anymore. Time is a flat circle. So I just was about to say 2023, but I was not at the radio station today. I was at the radio station from about 1992 to 1995. Okay. And what positions uh, did you hold at the station in the 1990s? In the 1990s, and still hold dear in my heart, I was chief announcer, I was uh, the PR director, and I was the host of the morning wake-up call. Okay. Let's talk about some of those jobs a little bit. What made you apply for chief announcer? I am not 100% sure that I actually applied for or that was the... Uh, recipient or, or, or had any formal process that made me chief announcer. I think at the time, Jim Mundy was the chief announcer hmm. and I think he was getting tired of the job or he couldn't uh, fulfill the responsibilities and duties of the chief announcer at WRHU. And I was fairly new to the station, but I was eager and I would have taken anything anybody threw at me. So I think when I was offered the opportunity to be chief announcer, I said, yes, absolutely. What is that? <laughs> so how long were you at the station about when, when that happened? I, within my first year there, I'm okay. fairly certain that I was not there very long before I was made chief announcer because I was there in my sophomore years when I started. I wasn't there in my freshman year. I think I went into it a little bit in the first time you and I talked. Mm-hmm. Um so my sophomore year is when I was made chief announcer, probably toward the second half or somewhere in the second half of my sophomore year. Do you remember teaching any classes or anything that you did while you were chief announcer? I Vaguely. I do remember we did have a couple of very small announcer classes because our recruitment wasn't up to snuff just yet. Uh, eventually, we did get a lot of people in the door, but at that time, wherever there was so much flux at the radio station that there wasn't this real concentrated effort to get people new into the radio station. I think most of us were just focused on making sure that things stayed alive and on the air. Hmm. And that would have been a spring semester too. I don't think we pulled in as many people then. True. Yeah. We weren't, we didn't have the benefit of a couple of months behind us when we did our big recruitment for my junior year, which was the big one, I think where we got tons and tons of people who started to be interested in being in it. I came in after the semester or the first semester, my sophomore year started, which meant that I wasn't part of any of the recruitment then. And I know there was a big turnover among seniors who left and seniors and juniors left behind who were responsible for way too much to um, be really reasonable for college students to be taking care of anything uh, in, in light of what was going on with Jeff Krause and, and how uh, that transition was going. Yeah. For context, for the listener, this was about the time that uh, Jeff Krause took ill and then passed away. So you were still relatively new at the station when all that was happening. I never actually met Jeff Krause and I, I've come to know him through all the stories that people have told about him, but my own personal experience is zero and I kind of have this mythical vision of who Jeff Krause is and was through your eyes and, and through all the stories that were told by either Sue or Steve Spencer or Kathy Wurtzberger or 
uh, Christy Jasberg and, and hearing about who he was through them. Uh, Dave mock was another guy. I don't mm-hmm. think I talked enough about Dave mock last time uh, who really gave me a sense of who Jeff Krause was. And I felt his presence there right from the get go. Uh, even though I never got to meet him. Hmm. Um, so you've got this short stint as chief announcer, and then you decided to run for public relations, public relations director. What was that about? Uh, that was about me wanting to have as much publicity directed towards me. I think (laughs) 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 I, uh, I think I wanted to do more at the station. I think I just didn't know what the heck, uh, I, I may be actually messing this up a little bit. Uh, in terms of the timeline, because uh, again, time is a flat circle and this all happened yesterday and 150 years ago. Um, I may have been recruitment director before I was anything else. Hmm. And I maybe have not been a PR director until the following year. No, that's not true. I was PR director. So I think I may have been recruitment director slash PR director while I was there. That's my, my junior year. You probably remember better than I do because you have that, you have that innate ability to do that. Um, I, on the other hand, am, am lost without my notes uh, of which I have none. So yeah, I, I think I wanted to do more, but I, again, I was still pretty new and I was very focused on being an on-air talent, uh, at the radio station there and beyond. So I think I was just happy to have my rock show and then whatever roles I could do on top of that. I was happy to be the recruitment director slash PR director. And I kind of threw myself into that a little bit, uh, especially that spring or fall semester of my junior year. I have a memory of you making a real active effort to bring in new people who aren't necessarily radio people or going over to Dempster where the TV department was and making an effort to, to bring in non-radio people. Does that sound right? Yeah, I, I, maybe I took it a little too personally that there was this attitude or this lack of knowledge about the radio station and what it really was. And I wanted everybody to know how cool it was because we were having such a good time and, and I wanted to recruit more people. And I knew there was a need for us to fill a lot of airtime and we were only going to do that if we got more people in the door. So, and, and thankfully I had management behind me, i.e. you and Christy and Kathy and, whomever else were there at the time. And Sue was, was uh, very supportive too at the time to just do as much as we can, especially uh, orientation weekend. We put up uh, a table. We were giving away CDs all over the place. We just went on this blitz. I remember one night, especially where a group of us just hit the entire campus with as many, um, as many flyers and as many uh, free CDs. And we signed up as many people as we could. And we also had, the big club recruitment day at Hofstra where we brought in even more people. And I think we ended up with like 75 people who were interested in becoming part of the station. Not obviously Mm -hmm. not all of them stayed, but a good percentage of them did. And that was a great start and uh, kind of bolstered our numbers quite a bit. Who were some of the people that you were working with? Uh, Was it just yourself or were there other people helping you uh, in the PR Oh, no, no. I think there was a lot. I mean, you were there. uh, uh, Everybody who was central to the station. And so I can't claim it was all me at all. It was absolutely I maybe had some ideas, but everybody else's effort is what made it happen. Uh, You were there. Christy Jasberg, Kathy Walsh, Will Shelley was there. Brett Dion, uh, probably Scott Smolev and and, um, 
uh, let's see, who else would have been there? Well, Butch probably would have been there. Um, man, the, the, the names are escaping me, and I apologize for everybody who I might be missing. Dave Mock, again, was a guy who was around and always helping out with stuff like that. Uh, Paul Cordella had probably worked himself into the mix at that point. In fact, I do remember going to <laughs> – this is one of my favorite stories. So Paul Cordella, who was the news director at one point and was also a host of the Morning Wake Up Call, I believe, came in, kind of snuck in out of nowhere as a member of the news staff. Mm-hmm. And at the time, everything was so fluid, and anybody who was willing to help could just find themselves a, a spot helping out to cover the news at the radio station. And then we did a great job considering we were a – very small college radio station. We were competing for uh, attention with major market news outlets coming out of New York City. Uh, and a lot of that uh, has to be attributed and and uh, we have to give credit to Dave Mock. Mm-hmm. And one day out of nowhere, Dave introduced his assistant news director, Paul Cordella. And mm-hmm. we all went, oh, who? Because none of us had ever seen him. And an introduction to Paul from a lot of us was going to the uh, Hofstra-sponsored, Hofstra-organized, I don't know, what would they call that? The club club uh, orientation day? The club fair, I guess. So if you wanted to get part of the, become part of the newspaper, you went to the newspaper office and you were hearing about that or in another room, they'd be talking about HTV and in in one room, they'd be talking about the radio station. And in this front of this packed room, we all kind of gave our speeches, our, our pitches for how great the radio station is. So Dave Mock got up and it was as usual, brilliant. And, and people who were into journalism knew that you could do something serious with Dave Mock. And then he goes, I'm going to hand it over to Paul here to, uh, to give his thoughts. And out of nowhere, this guy, Paul Cordella, who I'd never really met before, was talking on behalf of the radio station, sounding like he'd been there for the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was just the coolest slash funniest thing to me ever to have him come out of nowhere to sound so much a part of the fabric as he did. So I'm sure Paul was part of the recruitment process, especially since you know my interest was not necessarily journalism at the time. So we needed everybody, you know, if you were into jazz, we needed the jazz people to talk to the jazz interested people right. and get them interested and the rock people and the, the people, the Grateful Dead people like Bill Kaplan. He, he, I'm sure he was there also, uh, was there to bring in as many of the Grateful Dead fans as possible. And we managed to do a good job of not just recruiting people for the radio station, but increasing awareness that there even was a radio station at Hofstra. Right. right. Yeah, I remember Paul walking in the door and it was, like you said, it was like he'd been there for a long time and was just so uh, confident and competent and, and willing to work hard. It was it was really wonderful uh, having him just jump right in and, and be part of the team. I also remember that uh, you had sort of a team working with you. It was <laughs> Debbie Lom yep. and Paula... Rodriguez, does that sound Paula right? Paula Rodriguez, yes. And who I haven't Danielle heard from Mosa, yes. Wow, I'm so glad you remember those names because I I would have forgotten last names for sure. But yeah, I kind of had this uh, group of people who were interested in doing PR and only doing PR, which was one of the beauties of the radio right. station at the time. Is that if you were interested in doing PR but you had zero interest on in being uh, 
zero interest in being on the air or even working behind the board, there was a place for you to help out. You know, we were able to tap into the interests of the other departments, especially in communications. So yeah, I had found myself with a group of uh, other students who were really interested in helping out and, and doing PR stuff. So anything I did sort of became a team effort and, and they did a tremendous amount of work and uh, I haven't kept in touch with any of them, but um, you know, I remember Paula Rodriguez was such a unique person. She, she, I learned a lot about the club scene in New York city through her. Mm. And it was so diametrically uh, different from who I was at the time but I felt so cool just knowing somebody who was out and dancing at limelight back when uh, that was the place to be in New York city. Right. Is there something that you wish you could have done better or differently as PR director, or is there something that you were really proud of? (laughs) Differently. Oh man. (laughs) There was one time I remember we did the rock and roll Oasis as a remote from the student center. Was it the student? I'm, yeah. I'm calling it by the right thing. Yeah. Across the Unispan. And we set it up. And not only did we have the live broadcast from there, somehow I got it into my head that we needed to have an entire set mm-hmm. that would represent the rock and roll oasis. So we found that we, I, I, I don't know who had the connection for us to be able to do it, but we went to the theater department and they gave us three flats, mm-hmm. which are just um, pieces of wood with muslin, uh, stretched across that you can paint. And that's how many scenes or background scenery is made uh, in, in stage production. And so we had an entire day where people were coming in and painting this thing, three flats that's mm-hmm. s- stretched across. It said the rock and roll Oasis. There was a palm tree on there and it was a massive, massive effort. I don't know if I'd say I'd ever do that differently, but it's something I definitely was very proud of even though I, I look back on it and I go, I, I'm not sure what we got out of it except for the experience. And I don't know how many people were kind of fed up with my ideas after that. Well, I think it was a fun thing to do. It was something different. And we had high hopes. We had high hopes for everything that yeah. we did. We assumed that everything was going to be fun and successful. And I don't know what the ratio or the correct percentage was, but we assumed that we would get flocks of people coming over to us and saying, hey, I want to join. And I think we definitely yeah. got some people who were at least aware of the radio station after that. Yeah, I think I think our major want at that point was just to promote the radio station because we had that um, identity crisis a little bit because mm-hmm. the radio station served up one purpose from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. with the classics, or was it 5 p.m.? And the rest of the time was this brilliantly diverse radio station that served up jazz, then rock, then the the, uh, alternative music at the time. And on the weekends, we had all the cultural programming. But most people knew the radio station was there just because you'd walk around campus and hear classical music, which was very nice. But for us, that's I don't think there was an attachment that most of us students had to the classical music the way we did to when the radio station quote unquote, went dark from 5 p.m. till sign off. And then in the morning with the, the morning show, there was just a, a sense that there were two radio stations to me. And I, I always thought that was a shame. I wanted people to know. In fact, you know, I wanted people to listen to my show instead of listening to any of the other shows that were available on the radio at the time from whatever radio station in our market. 
Yeah, I think there was a definite desire on our part to be more connected to the student body and have them know the interesting things that we were doing. But a lot of commuters were there during the day and only heard the classical. And and I and I seem to remember that that you and I and, and many of us wanted to have a more creative, uh, forward facing image of the station. We wanted to make new bumper stickers and t shirts, and and there, it was pretty limited. I think than what we can do. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah, I always understood that there was a very big red tape uh, situation going on there. We had to go through a lot of uh, hoops to to even make slight changes. Mm-hmm. And I think that was when the ignorance of being young really helped me and us because I didn't realize that there were rules to begin with. And I was like, right. let's just do this. And I would spend an you know endless amount of time in the computer lab putting together the schedule or the the, the program of what we were doing, nobody asked me to, and I don't know if anybody even wanted me to, but I was in there making up this like packet of information about the radio station and I didn't have any of it approved. Uh, I think maybe I got Suze's to, to initial it before I attended it to the printer. But I think after the fact, we ended up finding out that you really should have gone through the school to do most of the stuff that we were trying to do because it didn't have the logo on it. It didn't have the right wording on it. It didn't have the right lettering on it, the right font, what have you. So we were breaking rules that we didn't know existed. And I think that was much more fun anyway. (laughs) The computer lab. Wow. You just took me way, way back. Yeah. Yeah. The, when the, when the computer, most people today think about it, Oh, you had nice computers to use. That's fantastic. But trying to do any sort of artistic thing on a computer back then meant that if you wanted to move this word from the upper left corner of the page to the bottom right corner of the page, it took about a half hour for it to travel down once you dragged and dropped. So every little difference you were trying to, or every little change you were making to your document took forever. And that's what I suffered through for my art as far as, uh, WRHU is concerned, and you're all welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that that very descriptive journey through uh, uh, pre-internet and, and, well, I don't know if it was pre-internet, but uh, the old-fashioned oh, computing styles. It's uh, Soviet-era computers. That's right. My own <laughs> martyrdom. But you mentioned the internet. The internet was such an amazing thing at the time. I was so grateful to be at in college when the internet became sort of a thing because we would go into one of the labs and talk to other people in other parts of the country just through text on these vax programs or these vax networks where you'd log yourself in and find a chat room and then chat with people who weren't anywhere near where you were. It was mind blowing. And that became a, that to me, the internet is what took it to the next level thinking, Oh, Maybe I can do some PR on the internet and tell people how great we are. And there weren't enough people on the internet at the time to even move the dial uh, even a little bit. Right. But when you think you're on a radio station that has the scope that it did, uh, which was a lot for a radio station that had featured kids, essentially. Yeah. And then you could bring in other people through the internet. I was like, man, there is some real power to what we're doing. And it was still in its very, very, very early infancy, but I still thought it was so cool to be able to, you know, reach people in that way. Yeah. Geologically speaking, we were there about 10 minutes too early. (laughs) I I think, you know, we were in the pre post 
early internet era. There wasn't it wasn't the World Wide Web yet. It was still no. just like you could you could reach people. We were on Prodigy. We weren't even on AOL really. Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. Good memory. Uh, let's go back. <laughs> let's let's get back to your other gig there. Uh, you were the host of the morning show, uh, the Hofstra yes. Morning Wake Up Call. Talk to me yeah. about that. Um, I think if there was a show that I had my eye on right from the get go, it was the morning show. I wanted that very, very badly. And my ego at the time said, why isn't it mine yet the entire time? Mm. But I really wanted the morning show because I saw it as an opportunity to be on the air five days a week, two hours a day in a massive media market. And I thought that would be fantastic. And of course, someone will hear me and immediately give me a very high paying job in radio Naturally. moments after my first show was over. Didn't quite work out that way, but it still was just an unbelievable experience. And at the time, we were getting paid for that job. If you had the morning show and some other roles at the radio station, you got a, a small amount of money every week to do that job. And it was just like heaven. It was, you're paying me to be on the air for two hours a day? They st- they don't do it that way anymore. It's definitely where different students take different days on the, on the radio station in the morning for the morning show. But for, for us at the time, it was that t- I don't know why there wasn't uh, like an all out brawl to get that job because I thought it was so cool. And it used to be called, what is it? Good morning, Hofstra. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was like, that was very cutesy and all, but I think, <laughs> I think we should change things. And, and like I said earlier, my ego didn't quite understand that other people may have something to say about it. So I, I just decided to change it to the morning wake up call. I didn't actually talk to anybody or get approval for it. I don't think I just decided that's what we're calling it from now on. And it, nobody ever told me no. So that started. And and I'm very proud to know that that's still what they call it today. Who were you working with on that morning show program? Originally it was just me because I started over the summer before Mm -hmm. my senior year. And eventually Dave mock joined me and Dave, uh, was good enough to go, even though he wasn't getting paid, but he was just there to be the news guy. And he and I would chat and sometimes uh, Howard Levy would stop in. Mm -hmm. I would try to get as many guests as possible because I found out that filling two hours of airtime every day, five days a week, is not easy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an effort. So I, it was, I was grateful to have some help over the summer. Uh, And that was a very fascinating summer for me to experience because um, the, the, I had some very different things going. First of all, I got to have a, a deeper relationship with Dave mock and our friendship grew a lot through that. Uh, cause he didn't have a car. So I would pick him up in the morning and mm-hmm. I would take him to the radio station. He and I would just chat and I heard his experiences and, and what he believed in as far as radio and, and what radio meant to him. And, and he was the real deal. Yeah. Uh, you know, he died, um, I want to say 10 years ago or so. And it, people who did not know him, it's a shame. Um, somebody who truly loved radio, somebody who truly loved journalism and telling the truth, which is so badly needed today. Mm. Um, so I learned a lot from him. And then later that summer, this is kind of a sad story, but this was 1994. So the summer of 94 was Woodstock. Mm-hmm. And I was there doing my show, and one of the things that came over the AP wire, and I'll 
just to give a little bit of context, I was in this dank basement studio for the radio station by myself. Um, you would go in and you would start looking at the news. Now, the news wasn't presented on this nice computer monitor and you selected the stories you wanted to print. That news was being printed on a dot matrix printer all night long. So you'd go in there and you'd rip all the news that you thought would be important or relevant or something like that. Uh, and I found out through that uh, AP wire that a friend of mine from high school had died on her oh. way to Woodstock. And that was to me, honestly, it was the biggest lesson about how powerful what we do can be. I was telling people for the first time what I had learned for minutes before that somebody I knew had died and there was a person behind that. And it really changed how I looked at everything at the radio station and, and what broadcasting was and how I wanted to be part of it and what I didn't want to do. So that moment really was very impactful for me. Um, then to lighten things up, eventually we started to expand the show a little bit and Butch was named as the co-host of the show. So it was me and Butch and we spent the first few months just trying to feel each other out and, and come up with a, a rhythm and stuff. And it was an opportunity to bring people in who were new to the radio station. So we broke it up to where it was me, Butch, as the host of the show. We had the hotshot Brian Scott, a.k.a. Scott Breinberg, as our sort of um, sidekick guy. Mm -hmm. And we had people reading news and doing traffic reports and sports. No, I was the one doing news. We had people doing traffic and sports reports. So we had sometimes a, a cast of six people every day doing the radio show. And that to me was another sense of pride because I gave people opportunities and it gave me an opportunity to learn what it's like to manage that many people in a room and host that many people on a daily basis and still try to get it in and hit our, hit our marks, you know, hit the top of the hour, uh, still do all of our uh, schedule throughout the day or throughout the morning and be done by 9am. That was a great experience. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, say enough good about it. It was just phenomenal how much it did for me as far as putting me through the ropes. Hmm. The atmosphere with you and Butch, you are both very funny people on your own. Were there times where you guys were planning in advance things that would happen on the air or was it more spontaneous with him in terms of like, oh, let's make people laugh or let's do something silly or was, I was that not part of the occasion? I, I definitely think it was a yin-yang thing because I was much more of a planner. I was a preparer. I wanted to know a couple things in advance. I, I like to be prepared. Um, Scott Breinberg was somebody who would prepare stuff. He would do song parodies. And Butch, on the other hand, was very fly by the seat of your pants. Let's just do this and make it make it work. And um, that was his way. And, and I've learned to respect that that nobody has to agree with how I do things. And it, just cause I do something a certain way doesn't make it right. But at the time the process wasn't exactly comfortable for me when things would happen that were just completely out of left field. And I was like, how do we get out of this? Like, how do we, mm. how do we, how do we make this? Okay. You know, um, comedy is difficult. Comedy is really, really hard mm -hmm. and comedy is subjective. So when you have people who not, 
are on the same wavelength as far as appreciation for comedy, but approach is very, very different. You're going to have conflicts. And I think two hours a day, every day, when you're 20 years old or whatever we were, that's going to cause some friction. And there, it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always um, a fun time, but it also was at times really, really funny and really, really fun. And sometimes the spontaneity of what we did worked totally worked and it brought me out of my comfort zone and sometimes the lack of structure took the show in places that weren't comfortable for me but you know we we all survived it so i guess that's that says a lot about you know how dangerous it ever was for any of us Hmm. is there a story that you always tell people when you're talking about the station or when you reveal to someone like, Oh, I did this, I did this thing at, at Hofstra radio. Is there something that always comes to mind or, or always feels comfortable talking about? Well, Brian McKinley, if this is your real name, <laughs> I have two stories that I always like to tell and they both involve you coincidentally, <laughs> oh, no. neither of which involve anything involving the radio station particularly, but just the friendship that you and I built through, through our time at the radio station. The first was our little adventure going snowboarding. <laughs> Just to set the scene. Yeah. Uh, on Long Island, over the winter, it tends to snow sometimes. And sometimes it snows a lot. And sometimes mm-hmm. you find yourself out in the back of the school in the parking lot where there are massive mounds of snow pushed up against dumpsters. Mm-hmm. And because of your radio station access, you sometimes find yourself having access to, let's say, lunchroom trays from mm-hmm. Bits and Bites. <laughs> so there was a bunch of us, I'm not sure exactly who was involved in this one, who spent an evening going snowboarding down this <laughs> this hill of snow on top of a dumpster. And I don't know where those trays ended up, but I'm sure they did not end up back at Bits and Bites. So that's one of my favorite little, like, you know, we weren't, I mean, we're not going to go to jail for doing that, but it was like, that's as naughty as I got. The other story was, I'm glad to finally tell this publicly. (laughs) You and I I shared a class. Oh, Uh, It was the physics of light. Mm -hmm. And I knew you for about three weeks at that point. And I just happened to have a class with you called physics of light. And that class taught us about the physics of light, including the effects of laser pointers and how they work. So here I am, this this still sophomore, still very new to Hofstra, still very new to Brian McKinley's life. And we were handed laser pointers because this was the physics of light. For no reason whatsoever, I decided to point the laser pointer just in different spots. And then I said, hey, Brian, and I hit the button and the button hit you. What I thought was your cheek, but you immediately grabbed your eye and you kept talking about how you see this big red spot in your eye and it's not going away. And I thought to myself, I've just ruined my entire life and this poor guy's sight. (laughs) And I'm never going to ever go back to that radio station. <laughs> and and it, there were two kids uh, at the table with us, our lab we, partners. We were facing each other. I think that's an important deal. That Yes, uh, you were on one detail. side of the table. I was on the other. That is true. So I was facing you this entire time. And the two people who were at our table with us 
who were very cool and very friendly. And I wish I remembered their names, yeah. but they, uh, they suddenly started to get really worried for you also. Uh, and I'm panicking. I'm like, I am, I am heavy breathing. I am sweating profusely. And I'm thinking about how I may have a lawsuit on my hands. <laughs> Cause I, I didn't know if you were going to totally just destroy me for this. You know, we right. live in a litigious society and you could easily have been one of those people who would sue me for hitting you in the light, uh, of, of a laser pointer in the physics of light class. <laughs> so out of, out of absolute concern, for not you, but for my own future, I went over to the professor and I said, well, um, are these uh, lights that come out of these laser pointers, are they safe? And the professor looks and very sincerely goes, well, sure, as long as you don't shoot someone in the eye. (laughs) (laughs) And I was done. I was done. I was like, my life is over. I've committed a crime. I've ruined somebody and I've ruined my own future. This is it for me. It was a nice run, Dave, but you're done. Little did I know that young Brian McKinley was a bit of a prankster. And I found out, thankfully, only about 15 minutes later and not like four days later. I thank you for this, that the laser pointer had indeed not made it into your eye, but you were smart enough and quick enough to pretend that it had. And had me on the line forever. And I'm like, you know what? This guy's going to have to be my friend from now on because that's the only revenge bad enough <laughs> for me to take on Brian McKinley. I'm so sorry. No, no. It's I'm my so favorite sorry. story. It's my favorite story. <laughs> you and I are talking. It's been 30 years. I, I think I'm over I've been, it. I've been telling that story too. And every time I'm like, I'm such a jerk. I can't believe I did that to that guy. <laughs> That's how I always fit because, and, and I remember this that that with the the lasers got progressively bigger and more you know powerful, and he was he was uh, sending the laser through a prism, and we'd all like go on one side. And I remember right. standing behind you as we went up to the professor, and he says, "Oh, just don't shoot it in someone's eye." And you stood up, bolt upright, <laughs> and and the the two people at our table were like you got to tell him. And I was like, I can't tell him now. (laughs) And I just remember getting to the end of class and you were like, we should really go to the nurse or like, we should go to (laughs) the the doctor. The nurse. (laughs) I totally (laughs) believe that too. Like there's a nurse, a college nurse. (laughs) And, and, and I, I finally fessed up as, as the lights came up and you looked at me just, just dead, just had no expression. And just turned on your heel and left. And I went, oh, he's not going to talk to me for a while. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad I did. Because you know why? Because I, I, from that point, got to enjoy your back of the door memos. Oh, gosh, yeah. I don't know if you've talked about this with anybody else on no, this show. I don't think but so. But you used to write these memos to the staff that were like 25% informative and necessary to disperse information to the radio station right and 75 percent your sense of humor nonsense which was always funny nonsense funny hilarious now here i can finally say after another 30 years worth of holding back and this is probably my best opportunity what one day uh a back of the door memo went up on the back of the door that was apparently written by brian mckinley but it wasn't oh it was a parody of brian mckinley memos (laughs) 
and you were really upset about this. <laughs> I think you took it very personally. I think you were very upset and you were very insulted by it. Yeah. And I'd like to this day apologize for putting up the fake Brian McKinley memo oh. on the back of the door. Oh, let me apologize for being uptight. <laughs> no, no, that was my revenge, man. That's how that's how devious I am. I got your back on that one. <laughs> uh, oh, that's funny. Oh, good Lord. Ugh. I really did consider that my 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 what is it my magnus opus of revenge was to, <laughs> to, to write a parody of your memos. I could just see you standing it down at the end of the hall, going revenge, <laughs> <laughs> McKinley. <laughs> oh my gosh! So on the other side, <laughs> um, in your time at WRHU is there a song is there an event is there uh, a game is there something that represents your time there as like a as a touchstone or 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 a remarkable event uh yeah I mean there's gonna be kind of this there's like a recurring theme here of just me remembering all of my own best the greatest hits here um I can sum it up in a couple of words the record database Mm. Uh, there's two. I'll start with this one. I got it in my head that when we looked at the records on the rock shelf, now back in the radio station at the time, we played a lot of stuff on album. And there were lined, the, 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 the walls of the radio station were lined with record albums. Mm-hmm. And in my head, everything was just a disorganized mess. I don't know why I thought this, because I'm not a fairly organized person, but I thought, wouldn't it be nice if we knew exactly what was on every one of these albums and which songs were on the albums and which songs were encouraged to play and which ones were not supposed to play because they have curses in them? Wouldn't that be nice? And somehow I convinced the entire radio station to spend their spring break Mm -hmm. cataloging every single one of those albums and creating a database that was used by exactly zero people Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's definitely one of my greatest hits and again this is this is pre like having microsoft excel or or something accessible that people could could reference on a computer we didn't have that oh let me explain these yes these were not digital databases this was a handwritten and then typed out database of albums so you'd have the beatles white album typed out the Beatles white album with all the songs listed on it. And then on another sheet of paper, there'd be the next song list for the next album. So it was absolutely useless for me to want to do this. And I still, to this day, can't understand how anybody believed that that was a good idea. (laughs) And then much less follow an idiot who thought it was a good idea. You're very persuasive. Yeah. And now my other greatest hit that I sometimes like to, uh, tell actually goes back to the stories that I, I do or don't tell. I've, sto- I've told the story a couple times. And again, it's another Dave Bryan story where we were all in finals week or finals mode or whatever, trying to do all of our work to get our final projects in or our final papers or whatever. And we all, as usual, because the radio station was this to us, we all congregated at the radio station to do the work. Why? Why not We're do it at home or in a dorm room? I don't know. We all thought we were more creative and more powerful and more apt to do well in our different projects if we were at the radio station. Mm-hmm. Great. 
like you said, there was no Microsoft Word. There were no personal computers. We had word processors. Mm-hmm. And word processors worked where you would type your essay into this very small hard drive of the word processor. And when you were done, you'd say, okay, print this for me. And it was like a typewriter. It would type it out for you as you watched. Very, very helpful, but very unstable. Mm-hmm. And good old Dave, who didn't do a lot of paper writing for some reason. I don't, ha- I don't remember having very many papers to write back then. Showed up at the radio station anyway and was just goofing around. I knew people were going to be there. I can goof around. I can entertain myself and other people. Brian McKinley sitting there. He's like 98% done with his paper. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm almost done with this baby. And I decided that it was a good time for me to try using the desk as a pommel horse, I think. And I kicked the desk you were using. And kicking the desk took your computer, yeah. or your word processor, and unplugged it. Mm-hmm. And there was no save mechanism there. You yeah. either no. So your entire paper was gone. Mm-hmm. That is my legacy at WRH. <laughs> <laughs> and really, that's probably the revenge for the physics story. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mine wasn't on purpose, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I remember, I remember that assignment very explicitly. It was a creative writing piece. And yeah, I put a lot of time into that. And And let this be a lesson to every kid out there. Okay. Somebody does something, makes you mad. Do the good old turn the other cheek. (laughs) Because in physics of light, you might accidentally blind somebody. (laughs) And if they tell you, no, I was just kidding. I didn't blind you. And you're cool about it. When you ruin their grade <laughs> in a college class by kicking their word processor out of the wall, they might not kill you for it. <laughs> I think I banked some goodwill by not yeah. killing you when I could have. Yeah. So you didn't kill me. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. I hate to ask this next question, but because I, I, I fear it's going to be another story like this, but what do you miss <laughs> about working at Offshore Radio? <laughs> what do you miss about being at the station? I can I can easily... I, it's not even a story. Um, for me, the thing I miss most is going into that environment yeah. where I was with my peers and I was around creative, creative people. Yeah who encouraged me to be creative, who saw what I did and not only not stopped me, but helped me do it. Mm-hmm. You gotta be kidding. I would come up with an idea at seven o'clock in the morning, this crazy weird idea. I would kind of flesh the idea out during one of my classes that I didn't care about, run to the radio station and talk to you or talk to Will Shelley or talk to, Jen Murphy or, or talk to somebody and I'd say, will you help me do this? And it's not like you answered, well, all right. doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but well, you really want to do it. It was, yes, let's do this. And I did some of my most creative stuff ever on a regular basis because I was surrounded by people like that. Hmm. That's awesome. Thank you for saying that. Um, what advice would you give 18 or 19 year old Dave Koenig. Uh, 
don't take physics of light. It <laughs> <laughs> was a pretty good course. Other than, was... the, other than the blinding, it was pretty good. <laughs> it was at night, so we didn't have to get up early for it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, what advice would I give? Okay. Um, man, what? Uh, there's so many things I would love to tell 18 or 19 year old me. Um, let yourself go. Sometimes it's better to let people lead you and follow them into something you weren't ready for just for the experience of doing something out of your comfort zone than to always feel like you have to be creating the guidelines for yourself. Hmm. Have more fun. Let it go. I like that a lot. That was awesome. Thank you. Um, so you leave WRHU in 96. Is that right? 95. Well, technically I walked, I went to the graduation ceremony in 1995, but I didn't actually get my diploma until 1997 because I had three credits I had to finish. Okay. So, so after, but I ended in 1995 was the last time I really did anything at the radio station. So after you left the radio station, uh, what came next and what did you bring from your experience at Hofstra Radio with you in your life and career? When I was in my senior year at Hofstra, we did an open house for industry professionals at the new Dempster Annex, which is where the radio station was going to call its new home or did call its new home. I had the very awesome honor and fortune to do the very first show from that radio station, or at least that building. And I had gotten myself to the point where I was getting serious about what I wanted to do with the next phase of my career, which was get a job in radio. So when I heard that professionals were going to be coming to the radio station who I can network with, well, geez, let's take advantage of this. And I met a guy named Bill Edwards, who I spent some time talking to. And obviously I, I said the right things or I, I pushed the right buttons and he offered me a chance to come and work at WALK in the promotions department. And at the time, WALK, it may still be the number one station on Long Island. And I knew nothing about it, but I went out there and I started working as a promotions assistant, setting up the big inflatable walkie bear, which mm -hmm. is their mascot and going from event to event. And every once in a while getting dressed up in the walkie bear costume. And I think I had done an event specifically for Bill Edwards church. And I think I impressed him that much that he, they were willing to give me a chance of being on the air. So I parlayed that into a news anchor position. And much like when I first got to WRHU, which was decimated by people leaving and other chaos, the news department had lost three of its main major players. So I was able to get a job and I was on the air for three years at WALK. Um, and I attribute that almost entirely to my experience at RHU. Uh, I don't think I would have gotten there without RHU. I don't think I would have had those opportunities. I certainly would have met Bill Edwards had I not gone to work at the radio station there. And if I hadn't been there at that time in the right place at the right time, I don't think I might have ever had a radio career to speak of. Uh, thankfully, Bill and Gene Michaels, um, who died not that long ago, were willing to take a, a flyer on a young kid. And uh, I was able to have a radio career, which is something I'm very, very proud of. Uh, and I think if I have to 
say what I brought with me. A lot of the lessons I learned from Dave Mock and from Bruce Avery and from Sue Zizza and from Steve Spencer about what you need to do when you get to the next step. I think being on air is a huge responsibility. And they were the ones who were responsible for us when we were crazy kids running around amok doing whatever the heck we wanted. They were the ones who were responsible and having respect for that really helped me step into a role that was way too big for me in shoes that were way too big to fill. So I'd say, yeah, the experience at Hofstra was definitely a plus and set me up to understand how little I was in this massive pond I had found myself dropped into. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dave. This is, this has been uh, so meaningful on so many levels. And, and I have to thank you so much for, for being brave and, and being the first person to answer the volume two questions and being one of the first person (laughs) to get this project started and your advice and your uh, expertise and your friendship have been, and been really meaningful to me and to making this project happen. So, so thank you so much for being part of this and, uh, Thank you for the stories and for the laughs and uh, uh, let's have some more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're going to make me cry and that's that, that I, I'm going to put it hold against you forever. Um, but I also want to say thank you for dragging me to Bruce Avery's retirement. Oh yeah. Didn't expect to get emotional about it, but I didn't realize at the time that was me saying goodbye. I don't think any of us had any idea um, that this might be the last time. And I, I'm very glad that you were willing to come because in conversations that I had with Bruce, both officially for this and, and otherwise, um, he had so many wonderful things to say about you and your efforts at bridging the gap between the radio station and the TV people and making a new announcing guide and and so many things that you did to preserve the institutional history of the station to create new boundaries and uh, new things going forward. And he was always so proud uh, of the things that you did. And I'm really glad that you came to his retirement dinner. It definitely was something I was very glad that I got to do. And I thank you for that. Also, just thank you for doing this. This is tremendous. I mean, to hear all these voices from my past and get to hear some stories about me that I don't even remember, but I'm so glad somebody did because we need things like this to document what we've done and who we were and and where we're going. So keep it up. Thanks, man. I I, I appreciate that. And, and in all sincerity, we'll keep going around like this, but in all sincerity, this project wouldn't be happening unless you gave me some good advice and encouragement. Uh, And, And that's, that's huge to me. So I'm glad to have helped in some small way. Absolutely. Well, let's next time we talk, let's do it in person and let's tell some more stories. Amen. Amen. Let's do that. Thanks, brother. Thank you.